Angus McAndrew has just completed his MPhil in mathematics at Melbourne Uni and will be starting a PhD at Boston University this September. During his spare time, he enjoys puzzles and laughing way too much at jokes written by children. <laughs> Angus. Thank you for coming. Today I will be talking about the mathematician Andrew Wiles. Brackets, make eye contact, don't just read off the notes, close brackets. <laughs> All right, forget about that. Um, I will say just quickly before I get started, the jokes written by children are brilliant. The way the mind works, just to try and puzzle together something you think works and then just twist it slightly and so it makes no sense. And that's where real comedy is. Okay. This talk has quite a lot of characters in it, but it's a maths talk. So like any good maths talk, we have to start with revision. So everyone get out your pens. All right, actually, can I get a show of hands in this one? Who remembers Pythagoras? Oh, Pythagoras' theorem, can we keep hands up? Yeah, this is, a good, this is a good scientific audience. All right, Pythagoras. So Pythagoras' theorem is something about triangles, something like that. Don't worry too much about remembering it precisely. What we want to know about it is that it's a particularly interesting equation. The equation says a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And solving this something tells you something about triangles. But it turns out solving it is kind of, I don't know, I mean, maybe you'd say it's about all mathematics, but solving is kind of boring. Frankly, there are way too many solutions. There are way too many numbers. I think we can all agree there are too many numbers in general. So there was Pythagoras, who came up with this equation. The next character to enter our story is another Greek mathematician called Diophantus. Diophantus said these equations, with too many numbers to solve, are annoying. <laughs> yeah. Let's look at nice numbers. Positive whole numbers. One, two, three, four, etc. Those numbers are nice. I understand them. They don't make me weep every time I pick up my pen. And I can use them to solve equations. So in the case of Pythagoras, the question is, solve Pythagoras' equation for A, B, and C, where they all have to be positive whole numbers. This turns out to be a remarkably interesting question. It's quite hard to see what the patterns are, what possible solutions exist. I'll put you out of your misery and let you know that there are solutions. And in fact, if you're interested, one of them would be 3, 4, and 5. You can check that if you like, they fit. And there are more. There are infinitely many solutions, in fact. This was Diophantus' question, and it was solved. People figured it out. People could say exactly how many there are. I believe it was Euclid, actually, who solved it. So not too much to get out of it. So let's jump ahead to 1637, Toulouse, France. The next character in our story appears, Pierre de Fermat, a fantastic man did a lot of great mathematics. In fact, he wasn't actually a mathematician, but an even more exciting character. That's right, a lawyer who did maths in his spare time. <laughs> I know, imagine meeting him at a party. And he found some of Diophantus' work. In fact, Diophantus' work was thought to have been lost. He worked in Alexandria, and the great fires that consumed the library of his Ale Alexandria 
were thought to have consumed all of his work with them, but some volumes remained. And it was one of these volumes that Fermat read, his great, Diophantus' great work, Arithmetica. And Fermat found this question, solve Pythagoras using positive whole numbers. He found it and noted that, yes, this has been done. People have figured it out. So not that interesting. So Fermat said, all right, I like a challenge. Let's modify the problem. Here's what I want to solve. Instead of looking at Pythagoras's equation, replace a squared plus b squared equals c squared with higher powers. So consider a cubed plus b cubed equals c cubed, a to the 4 plus b to the 4 equals c to the 4, etc. This is an interesting question. Try solving that with positive whole numbers. It's quite hard. You have to think, does anything even exist? Now, as it turns out, Fermat figured out the answer, and the answer is no. Nothing exists. <laughs> it can't be solved, which is maybe a little bit disappointing. But that is the answer. But in mathematics, it's not just enough to know the answer. You have to prove it. So Fermat better write down exactly why this is true, or else no one's going to really believe him. Fermat thought about this and eventually did come up with a proof. He thought about it. He's like, aha, I've got the proof. And at the time that he, the proof sort of came to him, he was reading a book that he'd borrowed from the library. It might have even been this copy of Arithmetica. And he wrote in the margin of the book, just his spare thought, he just said, I have found a truly marvelous demonstration of this proposition that is too large to contain in this margin. <laughs> yeah. Very popular with librarians, obviously. But he had the proof. He had the proof. He just couldn't fit in the margin. So what he needed to do is go to the library, borrow a book with larger margins, and then he could write it down. Sadly, possibly while he was looking for his library card, he passed away and couldn't finish it. Now, this was remarkably common in Fermat's work. He would come up with an idea, he'd figure it out, but he'd never get around to writing down the proof. So the people who came after him, his students, his contemporaries, his children, his son, finished his work for him. They got all of his little notes, all of his little ideas, and fixed them up, finished them. And he was always right. This was the thing about Fermat. He might not always get the details down, but he was always right. He would say, I figured out the answer. And yeah, he had. He just, you know, he'd written down part of it, just need to fill in the rest. He never made a mistake. So people went through all of his unfinished work and started piecing it together. But there was one thing that they couldn't get. This question, solve Pythagoras with whole numbers, but with higher powers. This was the last thing remaining, and no one could fill it in. It became known as Fermat's last theorem. No one could make the connections that Fermat had made to fill in the problem. People believed there were no solutions, but people couldn't prove that to be the case. Maybe there was a solution. Couldn't work it out. This actually got quite interesting, because it was realized that this small group of people who worked with Fermat couldn't figure out the problem, so they started sending it to their friends, and they couldn't figure it out either. And it became a bit of an obsession for mathematicians over the next many years. No one could work out what Fermat was thinking. How did he prove this? There's actually quite a lot of exciting stuff going on here. There's a lot of intrigue, sex, violence, plots. But we'll skip all those. <laughs> what ended up happening, actually, was there was um, a mathematician who spent his whole life thinking about Fermat's last theorem, but couldn't figure it out. And so in his will, he left 100,000 Deutschmark, which in today's money is about $2 million, to anyone who could solve the theorem. 
At this stage, the theorem became not just of interest to mathematicians, but anyone who could figure it out. So what happened is that the year after he had made this will and it became public knowledge, I believe 621 proofs were submitted by people from all walks of life. 621 different attempts to fill in the mistakes. None of them worked. 621 proofs, all wrong. All had mistakes in them. No one could do it. It was now an obsession for all people. Can you figure out Fermat's last theorem? But no one could. This lasted for the next 300 years. No one could get anywhere with it. And it got to the point where people said, OK, well, this is clearly impossible. This can't be proven. And it's no longer serious mathematics. Mathematics is moving on. There are interesting, exciting problems to study. And this is just not worth your time. It got to the point where if someone was studying it, then they're clearly just a lunatic or a crackpot. I figured out the proof. Yeah, just sit down. Pat on the head. You don't know what you're on about. OK, so that was the stage of it. It's gone out of public thinking. No one's taking it seriously. Now, the hero of our story finally makes an appearance. 1953, Andrew Wiles is born. Enter our hero, stage uterus. <laughs> he was born in Cambridge. His parents, Maurice Wiles and Patricia Wiles. His father, Maurice, was the Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford. And his mother, Patricia, is a female character in history, and therefore I could not find anything about her. <laughs> nice one, male historians. Thanks for that. Andrew seems to have led a pretty good childhood, as any young boy would be. He was extremely interested in mathematics problems. <laughs> I'm pretty sure all kids are interested in that. What he liked to do was find little cool problems that he could understand and solve them, or make up new problems for himself. I had to go to the library and borrow advanced textbooks and try and figure out all the exercises in them. One day, age 10, he made a trip to his local library and found a book called The Last Theorem by Eric Temple Bell. This book was all about Fermat's Last Theorem, and Andrew Wiles was immediately gripped. This is a problem that he could perfectly well understand. It's an equation that he could see. He knew the conditions, positive whole numbers, sure, okay, and he could understand that. But 300 years of the top minds in the world had got nowhere with it. No one could solve it. At that moment, he thought to himself, yes, I will be the one. I will prove it where everyone else has failed. I can understand this problem. I can figure it out. Quite a dream for a 10-year-old. But as life moves on, he started getting a bit more serious and looking at sort of modern mathematics. He did end up pursuing mathematics in his life. He went through school. He got a bachelor's at Oxford and started his PhD in Cambridge under the, under the supervision of a man called Professor John Coates. And he studied uh, some interesting objects called elliptic curves. That was where he was up to. Now, at the time, there were some interesting movements in mathematics that Andrew might have been quite interested in. I've used the word interesting too many times in that sentence. <laughs> there were two Japanese mathematicians called Taniyama and Shimura. They had conjectured that all elliptic curves come from modular forms. Hold breath and yawn. Yeah, okay, no one knows what I'm talking about. Maybe an interest to Andrew Wiles, not so much to us. Okay, let's move on. There was a German mathematician called Gerhard Frey. He had come up with this interesting little construction that said, let me assume that Fermat's last theorem actually, there is a solution. Fermat had said there are no solutions. Let's imagine there was one. You could solve that Fermat equation. If such a solution exists, Fry showed that you could build an elliptic curve from it. 
So given a solution to the Fermat equation, you get an elliptic curve. Okay, well, Andrew might have found that interesting as well. And then there was someone else called Ken Rebet who had proven that this Fry curve could not come from a modular form. Yawn? Maybe? What does this mean? So Taniyama and Chimura conjecture, all elliptic curves come from modular forms. Fry curve, an elliptic curve coming from Fermat solutions. And Ken Ribet's proof that it can't be a, come from a modular form. So if you could prove the Taniyama Shimura conjecture that every elliptic curve has to come from a modular form, then this solution couldn't possibly exist because it would give you an elliptic curve that can't exist because it wouldn't come from a modular form, which they all must. I know the logic is kind of crazy and messed up, but the upshot is if you could prove this Taniyama Shimura conjecture, you could prove Fermat's last theorem. Andrew Wiles was amazed when he found out about this. He exclaimed, all I have to do to prove Fermat's last theorem is to prove the Taniyama Shimura conjecture. Now, yeah, all I have to do, I mean, I think an example for an equivalent statement would be saying, all I have to do to, prove, to cure cancer is to eat the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> you might tell me that it's literally possible, but I'm not exactly licking my lips. Licking my lips. Andrew Wilde, on the other hand, has immediately gone to his knife and fork. He is going to do this. This problem is his. He's going to solve it. Now, he made an interesting choice, choice at this point. He decided, I'm going to work entirely in secret. I don't want anyone to know what I'm working on. I'm going to work alone and without anyone knowing. Now, academics in the audience might recognize that working in secret for many years isn't great for job prospects. <laughs> when you're applying for grants, they say, what do you propose to work on? You say, shh. <laughs> Ooh. So he needed a plan. His plan was, I've actually, well, lucky for him, he'd actually made an amazing breakthrough just before coming to decide, just before deciding to work on this problem. This would have cemented his career. He, all he had to do was just write it up and say, look what I've done. Everyone would be like, wow, this guy. He would have cemented his place in history via this result. But no, he said, this is not good enough for me. What I will do is I'll release this result that I've already got slowly over the next many years as a sort of smokescreen. I'll pretend that I'm working on this. This one result that I've got is good enough to pretend that I've been working hard for years. Must be nice. And that's what he did. He worked in secrecy with this smokescreen of existing results, pretending to produce stuff. It took him six years. He was entirely alone. He never knew where it was going to go. He had to use some old results, some recent results. He had to build on what other people had done before. He had to make up entirely new areas that no one had ever thought of just to attack this problem of Fermat's last theorem via Taniyama Shimura. One day, there was a conference back in Cambridge, quite near the library where he first read about Fermat's last theorem. And Andrew Wiles decided to give a seminar at this conference. This seminar held the rather boring title of Elliptic Curves and Modular Forms. Boring even to people in the area, because they would look at that and think, oh, this is just some basic material. He's just sort of describing vague things to do with the area. Maybe it's an introduction for grad students. We'll see what it's about. But he was considered a good mathematician, Andrew Wiles. People enjoyed hearing him talk. He was very good. So they decided to go. People decided to attend. And he spoke. He started by introducing the material, saying, these are the things that I'm working with. This is what I'm thinking about. And people were like, sure, we've seen this all before. And then he started talking about some, some new work. And the audience starts murmuring. Oh, this is interesting. What's he done here? Hold on. He's doing this construction. And 
if that's an elliptic curve, but a modular form, has he proven the Taniyama Shimura conjecture? And as the legend goes, Andrew Wiles finishes what he's writing on the board, finishes his presentation, and says in a casual offhand way, oh, uh, yes, as well, this would also prove Fermat's last theorem. Yeah. <laughs> Much like our audience here, the crowd went wild. <laughs> People were amazed. This hundreds of years old problem. Could it really have been solved? Could Andrew Wiles be the man to do it? Now, as I said before, when you do something in maths, it does need a proof. It needed to do it correctly. Sorry. <coughs> so, Andrew Wiles' proof was 200 pages of very dense mathematics, and it needed to be reviewed. People need to check this is right. So the reviewers got to it and started reading through it. They were ringing him up on the phone every day, asking him, Andrew, what have you done here? Because as I say, it was all new. No one had ever seen it before. They had to have him explain it to them all over again. But every time there was a problem, he would explain through, and they would be like, oh, I see how this works now. And then one day, a reviewer rings him up and says, I can't seem to make this work. This doesn't seem to fit right. And Andrew Wiles starts fiddling with it. A mistake. A mistake hidden deep inside the 200-page proof. It didn't work. Andrew Wiles had got it wrong. Now, sometimes when you make a mistake, it's fine. You just have to look at your work and say, oh, that plus should be a minus, or whatever. You just fix up your little algebraic error. But this was like a house of cards, a row of dominoes. This, this mistake, this tiny mistake, everything collapsed around it. He hadn't done it. He'd come with this big claim, and it was wrong. Now, at this time, people start thinking about Fermat's last theorem and the history that it's had, and said, well, we all knew that it was impossible, didn't we? We all knew that it wasn't going to be done. And here is another man who had a great mind, but has sadly wasted his life in the pursuit of an impossible problem. He's wasted what could have been a can't speak, fantastic career. But Andrew Wiles was not going to take that lying down. He says, no, I will be the one to solve this. I can fix my mistake. Now no longer in secret, of course, he keeps working on it. He did still want to work alone, but he did begrudgingly take on one of his previous students, Richard Taylor, they worked together on the project, and tried to fix the mistake. But it wouldn't budge. They tried sort of working through it, but there was nothing to get through. It just wouldn't make any difference. They tried doing different methods, going around it, but everything led to a dead end. It wasn't going to come out. A year further into the project, and Andrew Wiles is on the brink of defeat. He can't seem to make this work. The proof has failed. His life's work hasn't come to fruition, and it's time to rest his laurels. But then, at the last moment, a flash of insight. He thinks back to his PhD work with Professor John Coates in Cambridge, and his work in elliptic curves. A technique from his PhD turns out to be the exact thing that he needs. He had tried it before, and it hadn't worked. But now, with new information, he could slot it in. And it would actually perfectly put everything together. He talks to Richard Taylor, and it does. They're able to make all the links correctly, and the proof is saved. Andrew Wiles has done it, Taniyama Shimura is proven, and Fermat's last theorem, this ancient problem that no one has been able to tackle, is solved. That's it. <laughs> That is actually pretty much the end of the story. Andrew Wiles <laughs> completes his life's work and cements his place in history as 
the man who was able to solve for Mars' last theorem. This story um, means a lot of things to me, but I think it has a lot of exciting, you know, sort of elements to it in terms of who Andrew Wiles was as a person. This story has elements of, like, you know, that childlike wonder where he first saw this problem and just sort of dreamed of solving it, and that determination that no matter what went wrong, he said, I'm still going to do this. Andrew Wiles contributed a lot. Obviously, his work has meant a great deal to mathematics because he's invented these new areas of study that have been incredibly fruitful for the next, well, foreseeable future. But it also culturally and societally, he's cemented his place in history and shown what you, know, you can do if you just keep going at it and don't give up. He's received numerous awards for his work. This year, 2016, he received something called the Arbel Prize in Mathematics, which is one of the highest possible awards you can receive. It's kind of like the Nobel Prize of Mathematics. But I'm happy to say now that he has received an even higher accolade, being spoken about by me for 10 minutes in a pub. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>